Okay, we are in Matthew, finishing up chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Finishing up this section, starting from verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, one of the things that we have to remember in that we're going through the Gospel according to Matthew is that this is not in chronological order. The only one of the four Gospels that is in chronological order is the Gospel according to Luke. Luke tells us that at the beginning, that he wrote his chronologically. However, we are still early on in Jesus' ministry, and we can see this when we correlate it, correlate these similar passages and the similar accounts with the Gospel according to Luke. So Jesus chose his disciples, and then his first place of ministry was here in the Galilee. And it says that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he was going into the synagogues. Did you know that the synagogues are never talked about in the Old Testament? God never asked them to have synagogues it turned out that synagogues were quite convenient in that people didn't have to always go down to the temple in Jerusalem to have their teaching, to have their gatherings. It was a place of public gathering. And so one of the the things that we see, though, is Jesus often used the synagogue. He didn't say, oh, I'm not going into the synagogue because it was never never talked about by my father in, in the scriptures. He actually used the synagogue. And so there are many things that we may do as, as Christians, as believers, that aren't necessarily bad. Now, they may not necessarily have been talked about. So, for example, we ride around in cars. Cars make it very convenient to come longer distances to church, for example. So, if Jesus were alive today, he probably would take advantage of automobiles. There are things that are not in scriptures, not in the scriptures, that, in fact, God used. And here you see an example of Jesus using the synagogues. And he went to the place where the Jews were, where they congregated. And the synagogue was there as a place of teaching and instruction. And Jesus used that to his advantage. And he was teaching in the synagogues, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So this is the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus began to proclaim it. And let me, let me read a portion from the scriptures about the good news that he was probably proclaiming. If we look, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, you see some prophecies concerning Jesus, concerning his life. And there are things that he had, had probably set out to do at this time in the ministry. In Isaiah chapter 9, for example... It says in verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6. Now remember, this is written about 700 years before the birth of Christ. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So you see that there is this prophecy that a child would be born and a son would be given. And that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then it says that the government was going to rest on his shoulders and that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That this son will be called Mighty God. The concept of the Messiah being God Himself, was not foreign to the Jews. And that's why in many instances, when Jesus would insinuate this, they wanted to kill Him when they didn't quite receive Him. Many men may speak many things, and you will see them going from loving Jesus to hating Him instantly, on one word that Jesus might speak, where they're enjoying Him, and then all of a sudden they're against Him and wanting to throw Him off a cliff, for example. What on earth could a man say that all of a sudden you would want to turn in a synagogue from loving his teaching to all of a sudden wanting to kill him. I mean, these people weren't particularly violent, any more violent than we probably are today. But in other words, they would turn instantly. And the only thing that could make them turn is to hear something utter heresy. It's utter heresy where a man is proclaiming to be God himself. But this concept is not foreign that this Son who was going to be given was going to be called Mighty God, Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. So the Son who is given is going to be called Eternal Father, speaking of the oneness between the Son and the Father. But it says also, and the government will be on His shoulders, and then in verse 7, and there will be no end to the increase of His government or of His peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. So you see that the gospel that was being preached at this point in Jesus' ministry was a gospel that talked about how the Messiah would rule from Jerusalem over the kingdom of David. There would be no no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Now, if you read this, and you look at it, and you're sensible, you can look at this and say, well, I don't see Jesus reigning from the city of Jerusalem. In fact, there there have been many periods over the last 2,000 years, the vast majority of those periods between the time of 70 A.D. and 1948, where there were very few Jews in Jerusalem. And certainly not a Messiah reigning from Jerusalem. That you'd have to say. And I certainly see places where there is no peace. I don't see an increase of peace in particular. You know, let's be sensible about this. We don't see it. So what's going on with this prophecy? Maybe it hasn't been fulfilled. And that's right. It hasn't yet been fulfilled. Certainly part of this prophecy has been fulfilled. Namely that a child was born and a son was given. That part of the prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus came to proclaim a kingdom to them. That was indeed the Messianic kingdom. The kingdom 
that if they had received him would have been established at that time and Jesus would have reigned from Jerusalem and there would have been a continual increase of peace. But we're going to see when we hit later on in this gospel that there was a turn and there was a change. We do not live in the Messianic kingdom right now. We do not live in it. We live in what the scriptures talk about as the mystery age. And the, script, the New Testament talks about this mystery age. This age that we live in because the Messiah was not received, when He comes again, He will establish that very kingdom reigning from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And then there will be no end to His peace, to the increase of His peace. But right now we're not living in that age and that's why we don't see it. So it's not that the prophecy isn't true, it's that it's not yet been fulfilled. The prophecies that remain to be fulfilled are the prophecies that concern Jesus' second coming. But what he was also doing in this, during this time, he was teaching in their synagogues, so that he did. He taught in their synagogues. And he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. That's what he was doing. He was healing them. And it says, the news about him spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from the Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus was healing everybody that came to him. He was healing masses of people. There was no requirement that we see in this portion for faith. No requirement. The requirement for faith came later. At this point in his ministry, he was healing the masses according to their personal needs. Never did he say, well, you, you, you know, I, I don't see faith. That comes later on in the ministry. And that becomes because of a very precise thing that takes place. Now, if we look over to Mark chapter 1, and Mark talks about a few of these miracles that were taking place. So remember, Jesus was healing all sorts of people, masses and masses of people He was healing in this Galilee region. And they were bringing to Him people from Syria. And lots of people coming, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and He healed all of them, everybody coming to Him. And it talks about, in verse, in verse 21 of Mark chapter 1, they went into the Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Jesus began to teach immediately upon entering Capernaum. So here he is in the Galilee and he's teaching. He's just chosen his disciples and he goes and he immediately begins to teach. In fact, if you read the Great Commission where Jesus sends us forth to make disciples, He says that we are to baptize them and we are to teach. Teaching is very much a part of the Great Commission. And then verse 22, And they were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. And what we're about to see as we read through these Beatitudes, 
Jesus was speaking very clearly. There were no parables in what he was speaking. No parables in what he initially taught. He was not speaking parabolically until later on in his ministry. And in fact, it says that at that point he changed and he only spoke in parables. And whenever he taught, he only spoke in parables when he taught publicly. After a certain point. At this point in his ministry, there were no parables. He wasn't speaking in parables. There was a change that occurred, and we'll look into that change, and his disciples were taken aback at first. They said, why are you speaking in parables? He says, because now it's for you to know, and not for them. But at this point, he's speaking so clearly. And then in verse 23, And then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, and so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So you see, he was still in the Galilee. Right there in the synagogue, he began healing by casting out demons. And then in verse 29, and immediately, so that means right after. And that's important because when you don't see that, you never know when they're jumping around in the Gospels. Because to us, in our mindset, chronological History is an important thing. To them it was not. They're trying to teach different things about Jesus. It was not, it, it was only to Luke, who specifically in his gospel said that I am now going through the accounts of Jesus chronologically. So this word immediately means right after that, which is important for us to know. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick and with a fever, and immediately they spoke with Jesus about her. And he came to her, and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. So you see, again, he did not question her about her faith. He immediately raised her up, and she began to wait on them. And I can understand this. I really can. Because if the mother-in-law is sick, and she's unable to cook, Peter's going to have to cook. And it couldn't be too good. You know, if you come to my house and, and Shireen is feeling sick or something, you know, I'll give you a glass of water, I'll give you a bowl of cereal. <laughs> but that's what you're going to get. But it's not until the woman there is raised up that, that he was going to eat well. And, and so, you know, they, it says that they talked with him about her. They probably said, you know, mother-in-law is sick. We're not going to eat very well. He said, let me take care of this. And he raised her up. And then she began to wait on them. And then when evening came and the sun set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and all who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So you see what Mark is doing, he's giving us a glimpse of just a few of the examples of the large crowds that Jesus had begun to heal there in the Galilee at this time. And this is what it was like. Imagine being one of his new disciples and seeing this. This must have been quite exciting. You know, I'm with him. 
you know, I'm, I'm with the guy in charge here. It's really exciting. Jesus is healing all these people. And He's teaching them. And then it says, look in verse 40. In, in verse 40, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching Him, and falling on His knees before Him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out His hand and touched Him, and said to Him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. So you see, Jesus didn't say, you know, didn't start to talk to him about his faith. It said just his compassion moved him and he cleansed him. Very different than what we're going to see later on in the Gospels about how Jesus worked and Jesus moved. And we'll see the reason for that change. But you see here, he healed a leper. You know, in Israel... There had never been, there is never documented in scriptures, a leper being healed of their leprosy. Who was a Jew? Never had a Jew been healed of their leprosy in the scriptures once the law was completed. Once Moses had finished the law. There was a Jewish leper, and that was Moses' sister Miriam. And she was healed, but the law had not yet been completely written. God in His mercy, because Moses cried out, healed uh, 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 Miriam, Moses' sister. And she had contracted leprosy because of her rebellion. There was another man, there was Naaman. He was a Syrian. He was healed, but he was not a Jew. Never had a Jew been healed of leprosy. No account of it since the law had been completed in Israel. Never had there been, been an example. Yet there are three chapters in the book of Leviticus on what priests are to do with lepers. Three chapters. And never had there been an example of a leper healed. A Jewish leper healed. Yet there are three chapters on how to deal with them. So what had been quite prevalent in Israel and remains to be taught is that only the Messiah will be able to heal a leper. And that's what was taught. There were three messianic miracles that were given. Three messianic miracles which the, which the teachers, the Jewish teachers had taught Israel only the Messiah would be able to do. The three messianic miracles are, one, the healing of a leper. Only the Messiah would be able to heal a leper. And the Jewish writings remain to this day. To this day. The, the second messianic miracle that only the Messiah would be able to do is only the Messiah would be able to heal a man who was born blind, to give sight to a man who was born blind. And the third Messianic miracle was to be able to heal a dumb, uh, uh, demon-possessed man. A man who had a demon who could not speak. Because what was taught in Israel, you had to first identify, the demon had to identify himself, and then you cast him out. Jesus even concurred. He says, if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, then by whom do your sons cast them out? So indeed, there was deliverance. There was the casting out of demons by Israel, by the Israelites. Remember, the sons of Sceva were trying to do the same thing. So you see, it was... but. But never had they cast it out of a dumb man. And those are the three messianic miracles that Jesus, Jesus performed. And you will see in each of those cases, what comes up is people say, Ah, could this be the Messiah? Because that is what they had been taught. Now look at what Jesus does when Jesus heals this leper. In verse 42, Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, 
see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. That is what Jesus commanded him to do. He said, don't bother telling anybody. You still have three chapters in the book of Leviticus to go through. The priests still have to proclaim you clean. You still have to do this as a testimony to them. Not to complete your cleansing, your cleanse, but as a testimony to them. Jesus was very much proclaiming His Messiahship in this very act by cleansing this leper. Very much doing this in this very act. And this is why you can read in another account of the Gospel how when Jesus says, talks about healing of lepers, the people immediately turn on Him and they bring Him to a cliff to throw Him off. Because it spoke of Messiahship, the cleansing of a leper. This is exactly what He did. He cleansed a leper. And this was one of the three Messianic miracles that He was going to perform. And it was on the performing of the third of the three Messianic miracles that, that they then said, well, the only reason He can do this is, is because He has Beelzebul. In other words, He's filled with, with the father of demons. So this is the Messianic miracle that He performed. So if we look back now in, in Matthew in Matthew chapter 4, we got now a glimpse of the healing that took place. We got a glimpse of what took place here in the healing of these people. And this is what was happening. And Jesus was healing masses of people. Remember, He was healing large groups of people based on their personal need. Not based on their faith, but just simply based on personal need. Out of His mercies, He was healing them. And now He begins to teach them. In chapter 5, verse 1, is where we enter into this region called the Beatitudes. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. So when He saw what crowds? Well, look up in verse 25 of chapter 4. Large crowds followed Him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Remember, from Jerusalem, He's up in the Galilee... And there's crowds coming from Jerusalem, from Syria, from all over the place, crowds are coming. That's in verse 24, it talks about through all Syria, they had been hearing about Him. Large crowds are following Him. When He now sees these large crowds, in chapter 5, verse 1, He sits down and He begins to teach. Well, why does He sit down? Don't you stand up when you teach? The teacher stands up. Here I am, standing up. You're sitting down, I'm standing up. Well, not in Israel. Not with the Jews. Rabbis sit and teach. That was the practice of the day and remains the practice of the day in many Orthodox synagogues. The rabbi sits down to teach. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He sat down and he began to teach. In verse 2, And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is speaking very clearly. He is not speaking in parables. 
The parabolic teaching came later. The parabolic teaching came at the same time that there needed to be the exercise of faith in order to be healed. Here there is no requirement for the, for the exercise of faith. And here he is not teaching in parables. And you can see that if you jump on over to the last part of this teaching. That's in, in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed with his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So in other words, he came teaching with a different method. This teaching is different than the rabbis taught. And it remains different than the way rabbis teach today. If you see the way they taught or teach, they say, Rabbi so-and-so directed Rabbi so-and-so. And they always are quoting teachings in the name of some other rabbi, some other scholar. And that's not a wrong way of teaching, but that's the only way they taught. They would always be teaching Rabbi so-and-so taught. Jesus didn't do that. He never quotes other people. He just starts to expound. And he's never teaching about anyone, anyone else's teaching. He is teaching himself. He might quote a passage from the Old Testament, and then by himself he expounds upon it without ever quoting Rabbi so-and-so. His teaching was very different. He spoke as one having authority, meaning that he spoke from himself never quoting somebody else. He was very different than their scribes. And what we see in this portion, which starts in chapter 5 and ends with chapter 7, what we see in this is we don't see Christian ethics for today. This is not what he's teaching. He's not teaching us Christian ethics for today. Although the principles hold and the principles remain good, what he is showing them is this is the outcome of walking under the 613 commandments of Moses. If you walk these things out, this is what you should end up being like. This is the outcome of walking under the 613 commandments. But remember what, <clears throat> what happened with the Jews. They weren't just walking, trying to walk under the 613 commandments. Around every commandment, they put thousands of new commandments. And this was in the Mishnah. And, and, and Jesus refused to walk according to those things. So the vast majority of tests of the Pharisees are, are you going to walk according to our Pharisaical and Mishnaic law? And why did they put, say, a thousand laws around each law? And it was to keep them from ever violating it again. So you went in, they went into Babylon for 70 years. Into, in, into Babylon and Persia for 70 years because they had not obeyed the 613 commandments of Moses. And so when they came back, they said, hey, we better never do this again. Let's never get near disobeying one of those. So what's one of the 613 commandments? It's that you should never boil a kid in its mother's milk. That was one of the 613 commandments. Cited three times in the Old Testament. Never boil a kid in its mother's milk. So as a result, as a result, Instead of just taking this, this young goat and, and not boiling it in its mother's milk, if you go into an Orthodox Jewish home today, there are two refrigerators. There is one for dairy products and one for products that are not dairy. There are two sets of plates. One for plates that you're going to use with dairy products and one that never has dairy products put upon them. And in fact, if ever one of the ones that is not supposed to have dairy products put has a dairy product put upon it, 
it has to be destroyed. And they live by that today. And you say, that's very strange. There are many homes right around here, this very block, there, there are Orthodox Jews that have that very thing. And I've seen it. I've been in those homes, right in here in West U. And you see they have two refrigerators, two sets of plates. When we have an Orthodox Jew come to visit our home, Shireen will wash with boiling water our dishes, and, that, and they say that that then can qualify, or she will use paper plates for them. And never will we serve dairy. When I was in Israel, we had had lunch after lunch. I had a cup of coffee, and I asked for milk with the coffee, and the lady just stepped back. And the people at the table explained to me, knowing that you know I was this dumb American, no, you, you, you can't have milk products in this restaurant when meat had just been served. And that meant cream in the coffee as well. And you just couldn't get near. So, for fear that one molecule of a mother's milk might end up in a molecule of meat from some goat that I might have eaten. They go through this. So they put all these other restrictions. So it's very hard to eat kosher. It really is. Now, these days. It was never supposed to be that hard. Jesus lived by the 613 commandments. He filled every one of them. But he refused to fulfill the Mishnaic law. So what's at issue here, if you look at this, is what he begins to teach. You look at something that's so contrary to the world. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Look at what God does. He says, I come to comfort the weak. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Everything is opposite to the way the world is. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. No, I thought you'd be bold and you grab and you take. Jesus said, no, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Let me give you an example. When I, when I started graduate school, there was, this, there was this young professor who was a very big man, probably six foot five, quite large, and, and um, his career was just on this amazing ramp upward. And he had just gotten tenure there in that department, and... and uh, very gregarious and bold and loud and always pounding his fist. And I thought, you know, he's really got the world by the tail. And I said, it's so contrary to the way Jesus taught. Well, I've watched his life for the past 25 years. Watched his life. One thing after another began to fail in front of him. One thing after another. Now, I was recently in a meeting and, and uh, uh, with... with the dean's office and with some other people and when we got done there were several comments from these other people they said you know every other meeting we've seen with the dean's office has been deeply confrontational but you had this meeting with them that you ran and they gave you everything you wanted and you never got angry you never got upset and I said oh no no what I've learned here is that when you learn to appeal to people for help I mean the image is this you don't go in demanding something from your boss. You go in like the woman at the side of the road with her hands on her hips looking under the hood of the car. Everybody's going to stop and help that person. Alright? I'm telling you, if you're a woman, you want help, pull your car on the side of the road, open the hood and go like this. And you will have men just pulling right off to the side of the road to help you. There's something about that which just cries out, I need help. I don't know what I'm looking at. 
I know there's something under there that's supposed to get me from A to B, and I, but I really don't know what's going on. And there's all these people that are going to come and help you. When you go to your boss and you say, I need help, immediately you change the whole situation. You turn it and you're appealing to something, say, I really need your help. Could you help me out here? And then the whole tone of a conversation, the whole tone of a meeting can change. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. He teaches us a different way, a different way of going about this. When we learn to appeal for help, often it is granted. There is something inherent within people that they want to help people. They want to help the other who's appealing to them for help. Someone is drowning and they're you know, reaching up their hand. I mean, people dive in and risk their own life to save a person they don't even know. But, you know, if you're in traffic and this person is trying to, you know, cut in front of you, no, no way, I'm going to let him have one inch of space here. As soon as somebody tries to take something from us, we resist. But there's something within us that wants to grant to people who are appealing for help. You know, when I'm, when I'm trying to pull into traffic and there's this long line of traffic lining up at this light, I try to get the eye of the person that I'm trying to come, and I go like this, and I say... And once I do that, you know, I give this expression like, may I please enter here, please? And they almost always say, you know, they almost always grant me that. Because I'm not trying to inch in more and more. As soon as I can catch their eye, no matter how gruesome they look, you know, they, 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 they may only have one eye and, and be all contorted, but if you can get their attention and just appeal to them out of mercy, I'm looking for mercy, then they grant you this. It's a very different thing that Jesus is teaching us. His way is so contrary to the world, but it's so successful. It says those people will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. So what, what happens? You're hungry and you're thirsty. What do you do? Well, I think I will just sit here and be hungry and thirsty. And I'm getting hungrier and thirstier. But I'm going to sit here and be angry that I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. Well, look, if you're hungry and thirsty, go right back there. There's a bunch of juice you can drink and there's a bunch of food you can eat. And you can satisfy that hunger. And you can satisfy that thirst. Sitting here and being upset about it isn't going to solve anything. You've got to go and, and, and satisfy that hunger and satisfy that thirst. And it is the same thing with spiritual things. We sit there and we're upset because we never hear the direction of God. But we never go to God to ask. The Scriptures say, ask that you may receive. You do not receive because you do not ask. That is the major reason why we don't receive things. It's because we flat out don't ask. God never answers my prayer. Well, do you ever pray? What's He supposed to answer? You never pray. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. When you hunger and when you thirst for it. Look in Mark chapter 1 again. Mark chapter 1. 
If you look in uh, chapter 1, verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. So what was Jesus doing when everybody else was sleeping? Early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Don't you think he was tired after healing all of those people? Dealing with demoniacs, and which are no fun to have to deal with. But then he comes and he, he's waking up early in the morning and he is seeking. If you hunger and thirst for food, you can go and satisfy that hunger and that thirst by eating food and by drinking. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you can satisfy that by coming before God. It is up to me and to you. This is exactly what Jesus did. If you look in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, where did Jesus learn all that he knew? If you look in Isaiah chapter 50, chapter 50, you see how Jesus learned all these things. This is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. If you really want to spend time with God in the morning, when you go to bed, you ask Him, Lord, would you cause me to rise up and to spend time with you? He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God opens my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Where did Jesus have all of this within Himself to give constantly to other people? Look in verse 4. The Lord God gave me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Jesus knew how to sustain the weary ones. How did He get all this strength? He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. But if we just sit here and stomp our feet and suck our thumb and say, God never speaks to me, and boy, I can never really understand the Bible. I can never... Well, if you don't read it, you're really not going to understand. If you don't spend time with it, you won't understand. But if you hunger and thirst, it is up to you. It is up to me. Will we take this? Will we take hold of it? Will we desire to learn from this? And the whole pattern he sets forth here is so different than the pattern that we have in, 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 in other places, in, in the way the world teaches us. And so he wants to get hold of our whole way of speech. He says, if you're merciful, if you're gentle, if you're kind, all of these differences will take place in your life. Look in, in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. The epistle of 1 Peter chapter 3. So this is after Hebrews, after James is First Peter, First chapter, First Peter, chapter three, verse eight. Look at the way the scriptures teach us in those beatitudes and in this portion. First Peter three eight. To sum up all things, all of you, 
be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. How do you inherit blessings? By not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. This is exactly the direction that we are to take. It is so different than the world take, leads us. You know, somebody you know, does something to us, we want to do the same right back. This is, this is human nature. This is what we want to do. This is our stinking human nature. And God says, don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult. You want to inherit a blessing. Look in verse 10, that same portion, 1 Peter 3.10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So you see what he does. He turns the whole thing. Do you want to have a good life? I mean, that's the question. Do you want to have a good life? Are there any idiots here who are going to say, no, I don't want to have a good life? No. Everybody here wants to have a good life. Here is the prescription. It is right here. This is what you do to have a good life. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. If you have a tendency to lie, you're not going to have a good life. We must be free of lying. You want to know something? Because people perceive it real quick. He must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So it's not enough to just turn away from evil. We've got to have good works. When you do good works, you inherit blessings. You say, I'm preaching a works ministry. Yeah. Not a works salvation, but a works ministry. Yeah. What are you going to do if you don't do good works? You're just going to sit around and read the Bible all day? Well, faith without works is dead. It is useless being by itself, as it tells us in the Scriptures, in, 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 in the epistle of James. Faith without works is dead. So in other words, when you do good, you inherit this blessing that he had mentioned in, in verse 9. You must seek peace and pursue it. People will, will write harsh things, but seek peace in return. Seek peace in return. Don't reply evil for evil. Let it go. Let it go. And you will have a good life. When somebody does something to you or says something to you or writes a harsh email, write something gentle in return. Write, God bless you and send it back. Write something gentle in return. And you will inherit a blessing. And you will have a good life. This is the prescription. You want to have a bad life? Go ahead, write something sharp back. And you'll have a bad life. That's what it says. Jesus is giving us the prescription for a good life. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ear is attentive to their prayer. When you do the right thing, that's what righteousness is. When you do the right thing, God's ear is attentive to our prayer. When we do the wrong thing, His ear is inattentive to our prayer. 
His ear is attentive to our prayer. He's like, shh, shh, angels, be quiet. That, that righteous guy is speaking. I've got to hear this. That's what it says. His ear is attentive to our prayer. The face, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Jesus brings them right back to it in those Beatitudes. As we read those, we see how it is so contrary to the way the world is. Let's pray.